let's, uh, let's allow you to continue eating, but we're going to get started with the awards because it's a wonderful presentation, and I want to, uh, can I get your attention, everybody? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to get started with the awards. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Paul Bacharach to you, uh, um, CEO of Gateway Rehabilitation in Pennsylvania, who chairs our awards and recognition committee. Please welcome Paul. Thank you, Marvin. I, it's really my honor to do uh, the awards this year. I um, get to do the fun part of the program. You had the more serious section, and I'm definitely cutting out this indiscreet pet owner portion of my <laughs> speech here. <laughs> uh, it, it really is my honor to serve as the Master of Ceremonies for the NAATP Addiction Leadership Awards. A tough act to follow after last year, with a stellar performance by Ray Tomasi. I had to consider whether to wear that tuxedo or not, but I knew I wasn't carried off with the same suave sophistication of Ray. Be a little bit like, like um, <clears throat> George, uh, George Lazenby following Sean Connery as 007. But tonight we do uh, recognize four individuals with a focus in the, area, uh, in the areas of quality improvement, volunteer leadership, journalism, and the National Association Career Achievement Award. The selections were made by a nominating committee that received the uh, nominations and reviewed them. Uh, that committee included myself, Dave Rotenberg from Karen, Gary Fisher from Cirque Lodge, and our executive director, Marvin Ventrell. Our first award is the Nelson J. Bradley Career Achievement Award, and it goes to someone that most people in the field know. He, he's been around for a long, long time. Started his career as a new college grad with a social work degree in 1971 and progressed over the next 11 years to become President and Chief Executive Officer of Rosecrans Health Network. When he joined Rosecrans, they had the capacity to serve 24 kids, had a staff of 14, and an annual budget of $300,000. In 2018, the 100th anniversary of Rosecrans, they have a budget in excess of $70 million, over 800 employees, and serve individuals in 40 different locations across three different states. Most recently, Rosecrans continued its expansion with the addition of Prairie Center, a 49-year-old substance abuse treatment agency in Champaign-Urbana. Phil has served as the chair of the board of the National Association and remains an active member of the board. He's also been involved in the Illinois Alcoholism and Drug Dependency Association and he's received numerous community awards as well as recognition from his alma maters. But most importantly, anyone who knows Phil knows about his extensive knowledge of the field and commitment to leading a sustainable organization based on structure and accountability, sound business strategy, and operating practices. He's been a visionary leader who has built an integrated health organization adaptable to the constant changes and challenges of our industry, 
and in recognition of Phil's 47 years of serving the needs of his community, addiction treatment providers, and in particular patients struggling to achieve recovery from addiction, it's my honor to present the National Association Nelson J. Bradley Career Achievement Award to Phil Eaton. Phil. They have a teleprompter here and my picture's on it and I gotta look at that. <laughs> you know, this is really cool. This is really cool. Thank you to the Conference Selection Committee, Award Committee, the NAATP Board of Directors for this prestigious award. Marvin, thank you. It's very humbling and I'm very grateful for this recognition. At our NAATP board meeting yesterday, Ed Deal came up and congratulated me. And he said, you know, Phil, it's kind of nice that they do this before you're dead. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I kind of think so too. Before I'm dead. Um, but tonight I'd like to introduce my wife, Sherry. My uh, Sherry and my partner, my best friend, uh, 48 years, will be married in July. And my son, Chris, is here tonight also. These, yes, these 47 years, they have been a journey. But not unlike many of you, you know, we don't do these journeys alone. And we could never claim we do. And I have some of my team that's here tonight. Dave Gomel is the president of Rosecrans Inc. That's our operating company. Janice Waddell, our vice president of, senior vice president of marketing and community relations. Ann Baum is my executive assistant. You may have met her today. And also with us tonight, um, is my good friend, mentor, colleague, Renee Popovitz. Renee, thank you for being here, too. Each of you have had a significant role in this journey um, and have helped shape it so, so greatly. Thank you. I must also recognize the Rosecrans Board of Directors. You know, those of you that work for boards, uh, you know what that means to have the support of committed wise board members and donors that give their treasure to support our mission and help propel it forward, and our staff, our staff that have that fire in the belly, that have that passion for recovery that is so important, and that dedication. This recognition of me and my career is very kind, and I'm very appreciative. But the recognition and credit, you know, I must also share with NAATP. You know, I, I joined this board in the late 80s. 
um, and we're, with this little tiny adolescent treatment center that was more publicly funded than really the bylaws and the rules of NAATP said, uh, I could be on the board or even be a member, so I'd never told anybody that. <laughs> um, but back in the 80s, those were, those were challenging times too, Marv. Um, and most of those companies and many of them are gone to different organizations. Most of the companies are gone, and uh, many of the folks are to different organizations. But, you know, it was NAATP that, you know, and I've said this many times, I told Marv this when he visited our agency. The National Association and its leadership and the fellowship of the members, and you guys get that, held the hand of our organization and were very, very instrumental in the direction that we went. And many of you today, uh, we're, part, we're part of this journey that, that we have been involved in. You mentored me, you guided me, motivated me, corrected me, lifted me when I needed it, and buoyed me in this journey. One of my board members said, you know, Phil, it's really nice you're getting that award. And he's about my age, and he says, you know, we're, we're kind of getting a shorter runway. And I, and I walked away and, you know, I accepted his congratulations. And I, you know, I, I kind of view that runway thing differently. I think his view of it was kind of landing. I'm still thinking taking off. And I know we believe that at, at our company. And we are launching. And we are still growing. And we're still touching and saving lives and giving help and hope. We believe this is God's work we do, that you do. Done for his people. By his people. It's always been his plan in my book. Offering hope, changing, and saving lives. That's, I believe, as Len said, that's why we're here. That's why we participate in this that we offer the miracle of recovery every day. We see it at our treatment centers. Thank you for this. Thank our next award is the Michael Q. Ford Journalism Award, and it goes to Sam Quinones author of Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opioid Addiction, Opioid Epidemic. His book is really a three-pronged story of how heroin addiction became an epidemic in small-town America. Sam quit his job with the LA Times to create this riveting tale of capitalism run amok with the ultimate effect of stimulating a catastrophic opioid epidemic. Having read the book, and we actually had Sam at one of our fundraising events to uh, go through his, uh, his book and his findings, he's, he's really an enthralling speaker and presenter. And I can affirm that this story is really an overview of the greedy and reckless marketing of pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical opiates dovetailing with the group of 
Mexican entrepreneurs that uh, from a small state in Mexico that decided that this was a direction that they were going to take. He traces these factors uh, uh, through how they combine to, be, to affect an opioid addicted population in a small town, Portsmouth, Ohio, through or where the residents were priced out of the pill mills that existed there and turned to a new and cheap high from easily available heroin coming from this small Mexican state. They developed a service-oriented network that they expanded um, across America, and the story really traces a true crime story of complex sociology with an expose of uncontrolled capitalism. The committee unanimously recommended Sam for the award. Unfortunately, he could not be here this evening, but we do have a brief, brief acceptance video. So if we could roll his video. Hey folks, this is Sam Quinones. Um, I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for choosing uh, my book, Dreamland, for, for this award. Um, I'm very, very honored, and it's um, a grave disappointment that I could not be there uh, with you guys today. Um, it's been a, a, a very hectic three years. When I wrote Dreamland, I told my wife that when this thing comes out, we have to get used to the idea that it's just going to fade immediately. It's just going to drop off the face <laughs> of the earth because at the time, um, I just was finding nobody who seemed to care about that about the topic. Um, certainly, uh, families, uh, the extended families, uh, wanted to keep it hushed and quiet, and all the fabricated obituaries. And if you remember, not so long ago, this was 2013 and 14. Really, there was not the awareness of this problem uh, uh, back then that that there that there is today in a very healthy way. And uh, and, uh, and so I'm just honored and stunned when I, when I, I get these kinds of things, and I really appreciate you all, um, well, honoring uh, Dreamland in, in, in that way. And I want to say a, a couple of things that um, probably in the history of uh, drug treatment in America, we've never had more willingness to uh, look at other forms of treating uh, drug addiction. Uh, besides just simply incarcerating people. Uh, I, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, but I do think it's an important moment in the history of all this. Uh, I would say, I would encourage you to understand that, that you're so important in, in, in the country and, and, and dealing with this, this problem. I know how hard it can be. I know how hard you can work. I know how frustrating uh, it can be when you see people uh, relapse and, 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 and then die, and, 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 and the numbers don't seem to ever go down. They always seem to rise, and even when they may go down, it's not by very much. And I just want you to uh, keep in mind how essential you are to the country uh, right now and to um, uh, regions and towns and, and counties. Uh, what you do is essential. Uh, the country, I believe, would be lost without you. I also want you to understand um, what I think is a, an important point of all this, and that is um, that what you do may not be recognized uh, a, a lot because um, real change, you know, happens piecemeal, little bit by little bit, and piecemeal isn't sexy. It doesn't make for great, uh, for, for 
TV reports and so on. Uh, um, but that does not mean that you're not important in all this, and that does not mean that what you do uh, is not essential. It certainly uh, uh, is. And I'm hoping that you will keep that in mind as the, the numbers may rise, or even when they go down, again, don't go down by, by so much that, that would give you encouragement. And, and, and I'm just hoping you won't lose heart. Don't become hardened. Don't become embittered. This is um, part of this is a very complicated thing. I don't believe, begin to understand it myself. I'm a layman. I'm not a, a, a psychologist or a, or a neuroscientist of any kind. And so um, I've just been overwhelmed by how hard this thing is to, to crack. But that, uh, you know, working together, uh, we, I think we will find solutions, many solutions to this. People always ask me, what's a solution, Sam? And I say, there is none. We tried the single solitary solution, right? We tried uh, one kind of pill for every human being's pain. We tried a jail cell for every addict, you know? And uh, it doesn't, doesn't work, look what it, where it got us. So I think it's time to begin to understand that we need to spend a lot more time thinking in terms of holistic solutions and approaches to this. Uh, and if you do that, I um, think your towns will thank you. I think your country uh, will thank you and I just like to thank you all very, very much for this wonderful honor. Maybe we can see each other next year. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, for our next award, the Jasper G. Chen C. Volunteer Leadership Award, I'm going to ask one of our committee members, Dave Rotenberg from Karen, to present our recipient. Thank you, Paul. And uh, Phil, where are you? That's awesome, 47 years, congratulations. Beautiful. Anyway, Dave Rotenberg, Chief Clinical Officer for Karen Treatment Centers. It's an honor to represent the NAATP board. It's an honor to represent Karen, the state of Pennsylvania. Jasper Chensi, for those of you who don't know, which is most of the room, this guy was a lights out doctor from our town in Berks County, right, right near Karen. He was the best friend or one of the best friends of the treatment and recovery uh, field and uh, population in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, so we love this guy. He's beloved. We have places named after him and he's a fantastic, was a fantastic human being. Of course, most honored to represent Ben Zintak. Ben Zintak. Uh, he has a zest for life. He has a zest for Karen, thank God. This guy gives to us his time, his talent, his passion, his passion for our mission, his money. Um, he's twice been our board chairman. Dick Karen's nephew, he's 71 or 72 years old right now, and for all of his life, he's been of Karen, around Karen, and part of our fabric. So we're just, I could go on and on about his generosity of spirit, his generosity in general. I do have a few stories about Ben that I like. Um, he is, in the last three or four years, going blind. And Ben is, I think, he's probably 95% blind by now. Um, but that doesn't stop him from being a voracious reader. Doug and I know this because he constantly peppers us with homework assignments, the latest New York Times article, 
evidence-based practice, and so in an ironic twist, going blind but reading more. Uh, he's, the guy still golfs. That's amazing. He still skis. He's he has a second home in Telluride, which makes it sweet to get this award here. And uh, his wife, Priscilla, puts on a bright pink jacket, and he follows her down the slopes. Think about that. A, if that's not a metaphor for life, following the pink down the slopes. I don't know what is, buddy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, if, uh, yo, I just had to. But that's a true story. That is an absolutely true story. So uh, we do have a brief video of Ben. Um, and so I'd let this dude poop on my lawn any day, man. Ben Zintak, here he is, ladies Good and gentlemen. Evening, and thank you to the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers for this wonderful honor. It is truly meaningful to me. I'm very grateful for those that have helped me understand the world of addiction and of treatment. Doug Tiemann and Dave Rotenberg and others have mentored me wonderfully. I'm also grateful for the 25 years serving on the Karen Board of Directors and five years as its chairman. Uh, this has created enormous amount of satisfaction for me and for my family who has been part of this effort supporting me. I'm particularly grateful for uh, Dr. Jasper Chen C, who uh, was instrumental in making sure the patient was first, who spent a lot of time promoting this industry, and who would be very happy today to know that the NATAP had uh, instituted the Patient Bill of Rights. I'm also very grateful for my uncle, Dick Karen, who is the ultimate volunteer for his entire lifetime. He did nothing but work with the addict and the treatment of the addict. He showed me what true volunteerism was all about. And when it comes to philanthropy, I've learned what gratitude is all about. When I see patients and their families wanting to give back because of the importance that their counselor, that their counselor assistant perhaps, their doctor, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, um, their nurse, have helped them in so many different ways. Often they've kept them there when they wanted to leave. They've given them the tools when they did finally leave to find sobriety. My begging for money has very little to do with anything. I'm just a suit reminding them of what our organization and other organizations have done for them. You have saved their lives. Philanthropy is really all about what you have done for them. I will accept this award on behalf of what you have done for them and how easy you have made it for me. Thank you very much and enjoy your evening. Okay, for our uh, last award, we're going to move back into the quality realm, the James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award. Uh, this will be presented by Becky Flood, Executive Director of Ashley, also a member of the National Association Board. Becky should actually get an Achievement Award herself because of the four awardees this evening, she nominated three of them. So, <laughs> Becky. 
Thank you. I don't think there's anything better in our profession and field than lifting others up for all that they do. And uh, as I look out and get to have this view just for a moment tonight, there is an amazing sea of professionals, many of whom I know, that do miraculous things every day, all day long. And so really, to all of us, thank you this evening. But it is my distinct honor this evening and pleasure um, that we all have tonight to honor such distinguished awardees. The James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award was established only in the year 2000. The award recognizes new successful treatment advances that improve the quality and or quantity of treatment. James W. West, for those of you that don't know, was the first medical director at the Betty Ford Center. And he became a world-renowned addiction doc before there was ever really ever addiction docs. So this evening, it is our distinct pleasure that this award again is going to be received by a notable physician. He has dedicated the last 25 years of his career to the research of best medical practices in treating addiction. During the last 25 years, Dr. Wilson Compton has helped our nation better understand the epidemic we currently face and the scientific solutions that will help us overcome its devastating wake. Dr. Compton serves as our nation's deputy director to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. NIDA supports, for those of you that don't know, most of the world's research on all health aspects of drug abuse and addiction related to preventing drug abuse, treating drug addiction, and addressing all other health concerns related to substance use disorders. Dr. Compton received his undergraduate degree from Amherst and his medical degree from Washington University. He has multiple scientific achievements that include authoring over 150 articles related to substance use disorders. He is widely cited in many papers on the opiate crisis that we face today, and he is also a recipient of many awards. So without further ado, we invite Dr. Compton to the stage to receive the James W. West MD Quality Improvement Award and to give him 15 minutes to overview all of his work for us. Well, thank you, Becky, and it's uh, certainly a pleasure being here. I'm looking for my slide-moving device, but we'll, while, I'm, while I'm figuring that, it's, it's right over here. Um, while we're getting the uh, logistics of my presentation ready, uh, what, I, what I wanted to say was a couple of words about what I'm doing here. First off, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here in person and not being represented with a video. I, when I got this, uh, uh, the notification about this, I was actually kind of surprised. My cousin sent me an email that was kind of, it was hard to understand. He said, call me, there's something good I gotta tell you. Well, it took me a few days to get back to them, but then they were able to explain that uh, through some fortuitous circumstances that my cousin who has been a long time in recovery and working in the recovery centers in Wilmington, 
uh, Delaware had, had, had gotten me to come give a lecture there a few months ago, and Becky Flood saw me and was, I, I believe, impressed by what I had presented and the work that I represented. And so she nominated me for this award, and I, I, I had no idea. I was very pleasantly surprised. It also encouraged me to take a look and learn a little more about NAATP, because I, I had heard of it, but I didn't know enough about it, and it's actually kind of a big deal for a government official to accept an award. Um, so I had to send it to our ethics committee and our policy team. And the good news is, the ethics committee had no problem, but their review isn't actually as careful as our policy group, who came back and said, oh, no, no, these are the good guys. And, and I... And I certainly got a flavor of that by listening to Marvin with his uh, remarks uh, at the start of this night uh, to really highlight the importance of ethics and quality of care. We don't have decent care if you don't have the highest ethics. And I absolutely personally believe that, and I'm so proud and pleased to know that your organization is standing up for it and putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, while that may mean a short-term hit to your bottom line, I am quite certain that it will lead to long-term survival and long-term success because it will allow you to step forward when others are falling by the wayside on their own swords of their own doing that you all will have the good behavior to provide some of the answers that the public really needs. So I, I, I'm really pleased with your focus on quality and ethics as your major themes. Our, our, our profession absolutely needs this. Now I'm gonna highlight for you, I think I was given what, an hour and a half to speak to you? Oh no, no. <laughs> Just a few minutes. Um, I, I, of course, I'm going to focus on the opioid crisis, because that's been what's driving attention. But as we heard um, from Marvin, uh, th this is, uh, uh, in some ways, what, what, what explains all the attention to this? There are more people dying of alcohol-related conditions in any year. It's about 88 to 90,000 dying prematurely from alcohol. You didn't mention the largest addiction killer uh, in the US or internationally, which would be tobacco. Close to a half a million people uh, lose their lives prematurely due to tobacco every single year. And when you look inside of our patients that we treat, we ignore that to our peril. That's what's going to kill our patients uh, in the long run. And so it's, it's been a real revolution, even in our own uh, field, to begin to focus on tobacco issues. But, but why all this attention to opioids? Well, I, I think the attention is explained by this map. These maps show the rates of overdose deaths in 1999. That's where it's blue and greenish with a few little sparks here and there, but not a lot of activity. These are color-coded, so you can easily interpret them. But what happens with the most recent data? Well, you see how this fire has spread all across the country. Every single part of the U.S. has been impacted by the opioid crisis. Uh, and, and, and as uh, uh, society and as individuals, we notice changes in things. We become inured to static devastation. But when you start making it worse, day after day, year after year, we really notice that and wonder, when's it going to strike us? And the, the unfortunate answer is it's hit every part of our country, every family, every region, and every county. Now, within that, there's another key lesson. Some areas are a lot harder hit than others. And so that's what Sam Quinones was helping us understand, some of the broad social determinants of these conditions, whether that's the loss of jobs in rural Appalachia that was a setup for people uh, 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 wanting some relief somewhere outside of themselves. Also the fact that there was heavy physical labor in those areas meant that you had physical damage. And we had the unscrupulous medical purveyors taking advantage of that uh, in many ways. 
Now, as much as we think about this as one sort of crisis related to opioids, and, and as a physician, I, I do think of it that way, the brain doesn't distinguish between a pill oxycodone, a, a heroin powder, or a fentanyl powder. But the devastation from each of these is different on a social perspective, and, and some of the consequences in our, in our patients are different between them. So let's walk through very briefly about how this epidemic and this crisis has evolved. If I'd spoken to you a few years ago, I would have only focused on the prescription painkillers, because that's what was increasing through the 2000s in terms of the, the overdose deaths. Of course, it started with excess prescribing, driven in, in no small part by the unscrupulous purveyors of these, but also by a desire by physicians to relieve suffering. And, and we want our doctors to relieve suffering. We also know that these are absolutely essential medications when you have surgery, when you have bandage changes that are necessary, when you've suffered from horrible burns. You're extremely grateful for these medications to allow those life-saving treatments to take place. But when they're overprescribed, and particularly in outpatient settings, the devastation has been enormous. And we see it in the overdose deaths skyrocketing. Heroin followed on its heels as a number of people, starting with the prescription opioids, shifted over to heroin. And the drug dealing that Sam Quinones describes was part and parcel of this, where there were smart entrepreneurs that figured out, huh, there are millions and millions of people misusing prescription pills. If we can only get them to sample heroin, their brains will quickly tell them it's the same chemical. And it's often cheaper, and once they figure it out, it can be readily available. Most people actually don't make that transition, but enough do to have just devastating consequences. Now, what's been really a shock to all of us, me included, has been the emergence of fentanyl as, a, 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 as the, the compound that's causing all this devastation in the last few years. And you notice that that really just took off in the last couple of years. This is really all about economics again. This is a compound manufactured in some, according to my DEA friends, some 10,000 factories in China and then exported directly to the US. It was not illegal to manufacture in China. Now, it is now. In the last year, our State Department negotiated that, and the Chinese are coming along. They didn't have an internal problem, so they weren't paying much attention to it. It was just another thing that their factories could create that somebody could order from overseas, just like you might order toys or uh, machinery parts. You can order fentanyl over the internet. Uh, at least I'm told that. I don't personally know quite how it works. It's facilitated by the phenomenal profits. So about a thousand, and I'm impressed that the Wall Street Journal created this graphic. About $1,000 worth of raw materials can be sold on the streets in the US for about a million dollars. Now, even accounting for a number of middlemen in between those steps, that's still a phenomenal motivator of really awful behavior. Now, the other thing that facilitates this is <clears throat> the potency of fentanyl. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. All right, that's an 50 times. What does that mean? It sounds like a lot. All right, how do you understand that? If I took a cup of pure heroin, not dilute street level, but pure heroin and dumped it out here, you'd be pretty horrified. You'd go, that's a big pile of, uh, of heroin that can be divided up into small ampules, small little glassine uh, vials, glass vials, or in envelopes. Well, how much fentanyl would be the biological equivalent of a cup of pure heroin? One teaspoon. One little teaspoon that wouldn't look so dangerous to most of us has the same devastation as a cup of heroin. Well, to me, that says why uh, in keeping this from coming across our borders may not be so easy. 
because the quantities are so small. Even you and I could figure out how to smuggle a teaspoon of something. And a teaspoon would be the equivalent of a cup of heroin, which can cause so much devastation in our streets. So that's, that's how economics have driven all three major components of this crisis in major ways. Now, it's not just the overdose deaths. We've seen increasing prenatal exposure with uh, use of opioids and misuse of opioids by pregnant women. We've seen infectious diseases uh, increasing with hepatitis C spreading around the country and an outbreak of HIV in Scott County, Indiana, and possibly a new outbreak in Massachusetts driven either by prescription opioid misuse or generally by sharing infected syringes. So this tells us that we need to look at the underlying behavior of addiction because it has so many devastating consequences. Our government is focusing on this with a multi-component strategy. And I, I, I think that is an important reflection, that these are complex conditions that require a thorough, complete answer, whether that's prevention, whether that's saving lives quick, acutely by distributing naloxone so that we can allow somebody to breathe again so that they have the opportunity to go to the Ashley Center, the Karen Foundation, or other treatment programs and treatment centers around the country. I can't do treatment, and neither can you, with a deceased body. So we're grateful that we can save lives acutely. But that's not the answer. That's just a very first step. And of course, we're pleased that there's improvements in treatment, and I'll go over some of these in just a minute. I'm going to mention to you prevention. I don't know how many of you all are involved in your community coalitions, but we haven't emphasized this a whole lot. We have universal family support approaches that can actually reduce the development of the, the misuse of opioids by those kids when they reach their late teens and early 20s. So if you can help your community coalitions implement evidence-based prevention for middle school kids, you can make your community safer and help the health of those children that, are, that participate in those programs. A lot of your, of your facilities participate in these. That's why I mentioned this in passing. Now, of course, I'm from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and so I'm going to emphasize the role of medications. We've, we have three medications. I'm grateful that I have these as tools in our armamentarium. The problem is they are markedly underused. Uh, we see this uh, both in terms of whether there's enough treatment capacity, even if every provider of buprenorphine were prescribing at their maximum. But even when you go to treatment programs that say that they are going to take care of people with an opioid use disorder, medications are often not even possible in those facilities. And I don't think that's right. I'm not saying they're the answer for everybody, but they ought to be available to people for those who choose that pathway because the evidence is clear that they can help people survive and improve the outcomes. Buprenorphine treatment can help with Primary care outcomes, that's one example. It can reduce emergency department visitors. These are just a couple of the distal uh, uh, examples of how in Massachusetts we've seen their model of integrating buprenorphine into a full range of treatment services can improve outcomes. Now we've been supporting a lot of science in this area and I'll highlight a couple of studies for you. There's a, a, an important study coming out of Yale showing that they were tired of seeing people with opioid addiction coming into their ER over and over again and never really following up with the treatment down the street. So they started administering and inducting people onto buprenorphine in the emergency department with follow-up within the next couple of days. That made a big difference in terms of treatment engagement and at least short-term outcomes. No, we're not really clear how this is gonna end up leading to recovery because that's only the first step. But it's at least a way to, to change what happens where our patients show up, which is often the emergency department in criminal justice settings, adding naltrexone, adding the extended release injectable naltrexone 
helped improve their outcomes. These are people on probation and parole, so they're already at least under thorough supervision, but adding medications made them much less likely to relapse during the first few months of supervision. Uh, we've been working to compare buprenorphine with the extended release naltrexone, and the two studies that were released a few months ago suggest that they are about equally effective once you induct somebody onto naltrexone. And that's, a, that's an important step, and then it's difficult to get people clean and sober long enough to start them on the extended release naltrexone, because you have to be off of opioids for about 10 days, or else when you get that injection, you will be really miserable and there's no turning back the serious withdrawal symptoms. Uh, just the other day, we saw a new medication approved by the FDA for withdrawal, so we may have a new treatment for allowing detoxification and and uh, uh, helping people over those initial steps of treatment with this medication called lofexidine. Now, I'm going to end just by talking to you a little bit about a new initiative at NIH. We've had a tremendous amount of attention to the opioid crisis, and we're trying to translate this into a broad-based set of initiatives that can change our entire field. I totally agree that it's not just about opioids. That's the issue of the day. But I'm hopeful that through this crisis and through the attention that we're getting, we can transform the whole addiction field so that the private insurers will pay attention to the full range of recovery services that are necessary for these chronic long-term conditions. That we can start thinking about three and five-year outcomes as Dr. DuPont uh, and I and a couple others have been emphasizing that we can start thinking long-term and not sort of the short-term fix-all that, of course, people would like that, but it doesn't work. So what can we do to change our system of care? Can we use the new resources to test some of these models? I certainly hope so. We're really pleased that Congress was extremely generous and allocated $500 million to the National Institutes of Health uh, for both developing better treatments for pain that don't include addictive opioids, as well as new treatments for opioid addiction and overdose. So with this money, we hope to develop long-term approaches. And in particular, I'm very proud of a set of community-based interventions where we think a holistic approach at a community level might be a way to uh, uh, arrest this crisis in the hard some of the hardest hit areas. It sounds good. No one's ever actually put it into, into practice. So that's one of the things we'd like to test. I'm really quite honored to receive this award. Um, I am so thrilled that it's focused on quality improvement and on the ethics of our field. And uh, on behalf of the National Institute on Drug Abuse and me personally, I want to thank you very much for this honor. And I look forward to many more years of working with all of you. Thanks a lot. That concludes our presentations for the evening. Have an enjoyable uh, session in the next couple of days, and uh, hopefully you'll find the uh, rest of the uh, uh, annual event worthwhile. Thanks. <laughs>